All right. So we're here with Dr. Dave, and this is a very special episode because we're talking about the book Generations, the history of America's future, 1584 to 2069, William Strauss and Neil Howe. So we have Dr. Dave here. Hi. Thank you for having me. Introduce yourself. Um, My name is David Rothman. I'm currently doing my PhD at uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. Grew up in Chicago, did some undergrad work in the suburbs, uh, did my master's in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, have known Rich for about a year now and really excited to discuss this book with him. So, so what are you what are you studying? Um, my, stu- my research is primarily focused on progressive era race and disability. So I look at the intersection of uh, the two and particularly through how law and society is understanding and constructing race and disability and what it means to be an American in the progressive era. Nice. So I do have a question. Okay. Do you, I don't know, because you're more of an academic type, do you get offended when I call you Dr. Dave because you're technically not a doctor yet? I don't do care. People, do people, uh, um, a lot of my students always like say it. Okay. I, don't, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. I'm um, not going to change. I'm not going <laughs> to not call you that. Um, I feel like some people who have finished and are actual doctors might get a little annoyed by it, but I don't, I don't care. It doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have this book here, Generations, and I don't know how we've, we first started talking about it, but it's kind of right up my alley where it's kind of like a general bird's eye view of like, hey, here's American history and, and we're going to break it down based on like generational personality yeah. and they go through and they have, uh, like, there's four cycles of American history, and we're currently in the millennial cycle. And then they, they show how the, the generations interact with each other and how that influences kind of like history. Yeah, definitely. You, you might have a better technical way of describing this. So why don't, why don't you describe kind of like the book and how it's organized and how they got to that theory? Yeah, so I think both... Uh, Strauss and Howe are more sociologists than they are historians, but I think what they're doing here is they're looking at the scope of American history and they're saying that they've seen some patterns that they've recognized and that this pattern falls into a cycle of four different types of generations that then repeat each other as they go throughout, as they move through history. And what they're tracing is, and I assume hoping that we'll Uh, encouraging us all to learn from this is both how we can better understand what brought us to the point we currently are at and how we can maybe make some predictions about where we might be heading and how we can combat some of these crises. I think that's the most useful part of it. I I agree. I agree. Yeah. Like how, okay, we see what's going on uh, with these generations and the different personality types. What does that mean going forward? And how do we, in our own generation, kind of exert ourselves and make an impact? Right. Which I find fascinating from someone who reads and constantly is just working in historical monographs something like this has that history base and it's it's definitely looking back at times but um it's encouraging its readers to constantly be looking forward and trying to be thinking about these crises that we might have to interact with um and that's something that i don't really see a lot in traditional academic work so it's refreshing in that sense yeah yeah so this book was written in 1991 so it's it's interesting how the references they make, you, you kind of have to do the math in your head because they're talking about things happening the late 80s, early 90s, right. and they're talking about it as if it's the present. So they're talking about 
like the GI generation, the silent generation, still like in a very prominent role. Right. Which is 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 I thought it was really interesting to yeah. calculate it in my head and yeah. like we're just in this book they refer to millennials and it's just like little toddlers. You yeah. Know? yeah. So it's it's interesting though. Why don't you kind of go through so we have four different types yeah. of generations and there's two dominant generations that exert themselves. Um, the idealist type generations yep. and then the civic generations. And so you have the idealist generation after that is a reactive generation. Right. And then civic generation, and then you have adaptive generation. Right. Um, and the way that I've thought a lot about this, uh, I think the easiest way to, con- to just talk about it is to look at the most recent generational cycle. Okay. Because uh, it's what people are most familiar with traditionally. And in that, you have the idealists are this uh, post-war, post-World War II baby boom generation that is largely raised in a like safe and comfortable environment and are able to dominate society and have their place and uh, really feel like they know themselves and that they identify as this generation. And they're the ones that will, in many ways, maintain or create some sense of uh, power through like economics and, and po- uh, politics. And then immediately after them, you have this reactive generation that's in so many ways a more artistic quieter but uh definitely rejecting the their parents and Mm -hmm. and more rebellious like teenager yeah Yeah. they were kind of like like their parents were pretty much kind of hands off yeah and the society as a whole didn't really put much effort into like right children at the time they focused on other things in the the country right right Right. and i think what you see out of that is that those generations oftentimes then become the like artists and they express themselves through these different mediums that oftentimes aren't like a political agenda, right? I think it's something like that uh, the silent generation has never had a president, I don't think. Yeah, which is wild. But it, what's wild too is you're reading it and it's the early 90s and they're like, oh, but you know, in the last 64, 68 years, they haven't had a president, but they're almost guaranteed, guaranteed. to have a president yeah. this next one. Yep. And then Clinton won. Yeah. And, and he's not part of that generation. Yeah. yeah. So they never had. The only generation that's never of... They have what? How many? 18 generations? I think so, yeah. That sounds right. Wait, no. So, you mentioned Gen X, and they don't even call them Gen X in the book, which is hilarious to me. Yeah, it's so weird. They just call them the 13th generation. So, we're we're then the 14th. And then the one And then they go in the forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, So, there's technically been probably like 15 total. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then the civic generation. Describe the civic generation. So, then the civic generation is... It would both be that uh, the GI, that older World War II, coming of age during World War II, and then us as millennials. And uh, what Howe and Strauss claim is that we are the generation that will encounter a great like social, cultural, political conflict. Secular. Yeah. Crisis. And, and exactly, and will be forced to overcome this crisis, and that we'll have to rally together fundamentally change the institutional structure of our society in some way and then set in place the foundation for the next generation to really like maneuver through society based off of our foundation Mm -hmm. yeah very secular but also we have more of our like parental involvement in our upbringing unlike the uh generation prior to us we're in many ways the 
the last line of defense for this crisis that we're going to be interacting with. And we're the ones mm-hmm. that are going to have to, in our teen years, 20s, and 30s, really have to overcome like a great conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And then the adaptive type. Yeah, and that, that adaptive type is going to be the ones that then, after us, are maintaining our structural change to society in so many ways. So they'll oftentimes be more well-off. They'll be able to, to exist in a society where they have the means to enforce the policy that came out of the conflicts that our civic generation fought for and kind of created. Um, so where we're more combative, they're more status quo, I guess I would say. They're trying to please more so and fit in yeah. rather than create their own. Right, exactly. Um, they're good managers and they... they yeah, like they're the ones that are going to take our, our policies and our changes and they're going to be the managers of that class, right? They're going to they're yeah. take the bureaucratic role of it and uh, structurally enforce it until the generation after them then is, becomes this new idealist generation and starts to like kind of ch- challenge the status quo a little bit and push against it a little bit. And then that's how the cycle kind of repeats itself. But within the cycle, so, so we have, you have those generation types within the cycle, but they have kind of... Um, moments or events that cause these generations to um, to interact and to react, right? right? So with the idealist type, usually it comes together with a spiritual awakening. Right. 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 They, uh, they talk with the, the boomers, there's that. And this dates all the way back to the Puritans. Yeah. They, they start with this, with a spiritual awakening yeah. in like 1500s. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. It's, it's historically... Uh, a lot of this theory is clearly like makes sense and they have you can see it when they explain it but it's definitely weird to like kind of put yourself back there and make these comparisons between our, our last hundred years and the Puritans yeah, yeah. so many ways you have that if, if you're going to again use our most recent uh, generational cycle you would have the, the baby boomers are really the ones that are coming out of that summer of love Woodstock uh, expression Generation, and then you have the reactive rebelling that, against their GI parents. Yeah, rebel like the rebellious nature, um, and then the generation after that, you have the boomers are now in this stage where they're having children, and they're uh, again, as we said, like more hands off on them, and the, for lack of a better term, the forgotten children in society, uh-huh. and they turn away from that spiritual expression and turned more towards like artistic expression and f- trying to find their place in a world where they weren't necessarily uh, as a child the most important part of their family. They have to basically like figure it out. Yeah. And, like, and they're kind of, it can lead to a lot of darkness. Yeah. Um, and the, the generation that mirrors the Gen X type is the lost generation. Right. So these guys uh, fighting World War One per se come back from the war and instead, they get society bans alcohol and, yeah. and, and all this stuff. Uh, whereas the GI generation fights World War II, and what do they do? Right. They give them everything. the GI Bill. They give them. They give them everything. Yeah, you get the white picket fence, the suburban house. Yeah. everything's comfortable. Yeah. All right, Dave. So we have a list here of like fourteen generations and their types. Why don't we do like a highlight edition? Kind of talk about them, kind of what was going on at the time, and then uh, then I'll chime in, kind of add anything that needs to be said. Cool. The Puritans. Yeah, wild. Uh, and 
historically, this is like a little strange because the idealist generation here for the Puritans, they're also the ones that are in so many ways like creating just an entirely new structure, right? Right. So they're the ones that are uh, like socially and culturally having to implement what their society is going to be in this like new world environment. And I think that that causes a lot of... I think that that might be the weirdest idealist generation to talk about just because it's out there isn't this formal structure in place necessarily as much as we'll see later throughout like American history. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, then the Cavalier generation. Yeah, like that. That this is rough for them. I thought. Yeah, this is very rough for them. <laughs> they had a rough time, um, and that's that's talking about how they're really coming into their own during a period of like religious intolerance. Largely, they're. Their, the previous generation before them is enforcing very strict cultural norms and they're now having to figure out how to try and break some of that down but they're also, if you were to make the comparison to today, they're a more silent, more forgotten generation in general. So I think they really... Str- is, is this the generation that's getting like burned at the stake? Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> so, so not only are they oftentimes regarded as like less important but at this time, their views are seen as like heretics, right? So yeah. they're the ones that are being really, really shunned and pushed away, um, and their ideas not allowed to like flourish or grow. The glorious uh, generation, which is a civic type, right? So that would be like your comparison to like a millennial or a, or a GI generation, and they have that as like the glorious revolution. The the idea of enlightenment is really coming into play here. Uh, liberty, uh, the relationship between your fellow men as being a path towards like life, liberty, a pursuit of property and happiness really grows out of this like glorious revolution yeah. rhetoric. And they're challenging some of those and not only challenging, but then breaking down some of those previous structures of intolerance that you see in society. Right. Yeah. So they're the ones now that are saying like, okay, well we're not going to start, we're not just going to be burning people at the stake. Right. We're, yeah. gonna, we're, we're more tolerant of religious uh, uh, differences mm-hmm. and, that really comes out of that like glorious revolution, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So then the next one then is the Enlightenment generation. Yeah. And I've always been a big fan of the Enlightenment. Just this is the Ben Franklin one, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so these are going to be the people now that are taking those ideas of mm-hmm. life and liberty and they're putting them, they're codifying them into law, right? And they're codifying them into uh, how society is going to work. So you'll see in constitutional documents in large-scale political writing that people are starting to really put these like enlightened ideas into something that works for a society or country ah the awakening generation the idealist type yeah um and they were born 1701 to like 1723 right there what's a good way to talk about them um their awakening is going to be more of this trying to think about how to phrase it <laughs> they're they've inherited right so they started to inherit the, the structures of a more again for lack of a better term like normal society right there's more structures legally in, in place and then now they get to be the ones that can kind of break away from that a little bit and start to challenge the the enlightened ideals through that's like a spiritual expression you see a, a large religious uh, resurgence in this awakening generation and they're I, I really think like pushing back against some of this 
maybe not pushing pushing back, but but modifying that enlightened ideals that they, that they grew up with from yeah. their parents. Yeah. All right, the Liberty Generation, a reactive type. I felt like it's kind of rough for them too. Yeah. Again, uh, which is the consistent. Yeah, theme, I think right? we, I was going to say the same thing. I think when you look through it, it just kind of seems to be pretty rough for those <laughs> reactive types. Um, so that's going to be at this. They they have it as like the French and Indian Wars going on at the time. Uh, there's going to be economic struggle. There's going to be this like this birth of revolutionary ideas starting to be discussed and talked about. You have large scale wars in Europe from like long standing empires and how that's affecting these ideas of of both like liberty and then religious expression and like territorial control within your own region and interactions between these the culture the cultural interactions i guess is what i really pulled away from that one and how people are culturally interacting with all these facets of like european society but then they also have indigenous people and it's just like this yeah yeah yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of sticky there. Yeah, there's a lot going on. The Republican generation, civic type. So this is going to be now where team you, civic. Yeah, team civic over here. This is going to be where you start to really see that birth of the of the American Revolution starting to like flourish, and uh, the this would be the generation of the founding fathers, right? These are the ones that are are some of the founding fathers. So these are the ones that are really coming out and and starting to again like structurally change what America is at the time. Yeah, this is like your your Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, John Marshall, right. Alexander Hamilton, Eli Whitney is, you know, creating the cotton gin. Right, and they're radically changing how society looks and is talked about and how it's discussed um, through their writing, but then also through their action. And I think that that's something that we'll see consistent throughout all of the civic generations is that it's really this action that starts to take over. And with the Founding Fathers, it's it's their pressure against society to demand a structural change. This is Yeah, this is where they're, they're establishing institutions and structure and, yeah, making it their own. Right. The Compromise Generation. Um, so this is going to be the, the the people after now, this, like, birth of the nation, right? This, this uh, the children of the, of the founders, right? Mm-hmm. And this probably sounds horrible for someone, but this has always been to me like a very boring status quo generation, right? It, it seems <laughs> like, and, and I guess we've said that before, but about these, the adaptive uh, generations, but they oftentimes, especially here, reflect just not wanting to rock the boat too right. much, right? So, and the civic type before them is so, um, just so like strong and, and uh, well, highly regarded, right? Confident. Yeah. 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 Um, and they're just maintaining, in so many ways, that that previous generation's structure. And it, I think with this, when you look back historically, again, this is you have to kind of put yourself there, like mentally. But yeah. um, the country is very, very young at this point, right? So the radicalism from these next generations isn't necessarily going to be as drastic immediately following the American Revolution. Um, particularly because you're not trying to, like, immediately destroy this new structure, this new country mm-hmm. that you just built, right? Right. Yeah. The next one. So I actually have... Transcendentalists. In general, I wanted to kind of pick your brain about this. Yeah. Um, for this whole, like, generation in general. Because mm-hmm. one of my, like, critiques of it is that this whole generational cycle seems 
wild and also like it undermines a lot of the arguments and theory that they're using because they just don't have a generation. There's, they have a yeah. whole cycle. Or, but doesn't that... Okay, so uh, for the listeners, we... There's, so we've gone through the... There's like the colonial cycle of right. four generations. Then you have the revolutionary cycle of right. four generations that just uh, finished with a compromise generation. Then you have the civil war cycle. And this is the only... While they're doing their research, the only generational cycle that didn't include a civic generation type. Right. It goes from the transcendental generation to the gilded generation and then jumps ahead to the, the progressive uh, generation, which is the adaptive type. And I don't know. I think it... Well, let's go through these three and okay. then, then circle back. Okay. Okay. Cool. So the transcendental one. Yeah, so these are... Very forceful. Very forceful. And these are going to be the... the the, the Woodstock kids of the of the 60s, these are going to be that, but just yeah. in the turn of the century. Like, uh, you Rolf Waldo Emerson. Yeah, they're going out yeah, into yeah. the forests and connecting with nature and um, expressing themselves and viewing society as this uh, independent trek out into the world, right? That's what I pull away from the transcendentalists mm-hmm. is that they're really going out and like creating their own experiences through their... Uh, connection with nature and with the world and with that more like tangible aspect of their society they're going out and they're, they're living these experiences right yeah. and you don't necessarily see that with the generations around them they're really creating how would you say it uh, a form of I guess like cultural and social expression through their connection with like the world it's weird to say but <laughs> and and you see as they get older um they have very strong beliefs, yeah. and this is this is what really tears the country apart in a way because they they're very confident in what they believe, and they're not the adaptive type where they just want to play nice and fit in. They, right. They you know so the South their leaders believe this, and Abraham Lincoln believes that, and all these other folks, and um, right. so it comes to a head, obviously. Right. Then you have the Gilded Generation. Right, um, and this is going to be where some of my questions for this start to show up because this is the generation that will be the the soldiers during the civil war yeah right so they're the ones that are fighting the battles of the of that transcendentalist generations like conflict right they're they're, they're going to be the ones that are really taking up arms in this slavery debate in the country and a, like a devastating the most devastating war uh, for america being the civil war it just fractures the, the nation right it's literally splits it in half yeah. and i also think that they get a pretty bad end of the stick here right? <laughs> they do again like they, <laughs> this is a pretty bad uh bad war to fight the technological advancements aren't there so people are suffering very like horrible horrible wounds. i hate that we're we're laughing at some of these reactive generations but just in retrospect yeah it's, yeah it's as a whole it's kind of funny it's it, the comedy doesn't come from what happens to him. The yeah. comedy comes that it's just all, every situation. It's like, wow, yeah, that yeah. must really be a bummer. It was yeah. really, really just born at the wrong time yeah. in American history. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then we have the progressive generation. This is kind of like, this is your your, uh, your yeah. wheelhouse. Right. Which they, Strauss and Howe, label this as adapt- adaptive and, and 
claims that there was this absence of like a civic generation here, right? So they never had their millennial mm -hmm. rising. Um, and the progressives are, they're the ones that are going to be coming through this gilded age. They're going to be uh, reformers in society. They're going to start to look to legal reform, educational reform. Um, they're going to really attempt, fail, but attempt to create uh, a world where there's a dedication to the reconstruction ideals in the nation, and that'll eventually be deconstructed by like, racial politics. But they're, after this war, they're trying to figure out how to rebuild the nation into a union again, after this like separation with the war, right? So they're looking at all every structure of society, and they're starting to kind of brick by brick build it back up. Okay, so to talk about the Civil War cycle, so we don't have a civic generation. Is that because, I mean, this is just maybe one idea of why, but you don't have a collective America. I was, I was thinking about that, but I also feel like the values, and although, yes, the, the nation is split, it's still the nation. It's still, it's, there's a war that's broken out between ideology, but generationally there's still people born Right, like there's right. still there's still something going on there, and it seems like, from my perspective with this, and I mean I could be totally wrong, but the post-war like Reconstruction, the people who would have come of age in that Reconstruction era would have been the civic generation, right? And I, and I see them as being the putting into place this idea of racial tolerance and that particularly after the Civil War, there's this big question about what do you do with a new entire minority of uh, emancipated human beings Citizens. In, yeah, in our country. Yeah. How, how does that work? And that's where I feel, especially with the section, that maybe the book misses an opportunity to highlight that. Because there are a lot of great successes in, the Re in this Reconstruction era that are broken down by then what would become the early stages of that progressive generation, right? Some, some of the people who are saying we are, and that's what's so fascinating about this specific cycle, is because of the racial tension in the nation mm -hmm. at the time, you have this, re this reconstruction generation and they are writing into law that African-American men can vote unobstructed. And that's something that's never before been seen in the country. Right. So you have now uh, African-American politics, African-American uh, leaders are starting to really create a, a political voice in the South that lasts until the, you know, the end of Reconstruction, the late 1880s. And I think that one of the, the flaws of this is that I, they miss an opportunity to really highlight the success of that post-war uh, group. I think that that's a, a, there's a clear connection there in my head that I see, and I'm interested as to why they, they missed it. So a civic generation would try to come in and sweep up kind of the mess that was the Civil War right. and the destruction. Was the idealist generation just so strong-willed that they just didn't let another generation come in and like... Yeah, so I, I can see that point, but I, I still think that it's not even... This is, this is the instance where, like, generations then kind of breaks down a little bit for me. Because the reason why I don't see a civic generation here is because, just like very simply put, racism is right. 
just this how do you how are we understanding and dealing with um, a post Civil War world? And we look at in our mindset, we always see these civic generations as like the heroes, the the, the people who are going to create this long, like lasting institutional change, but they're still racist. Like yeah. in the South, the generation of these people, they're still trying to deny African Americans the vote. Af- they're trying to deny African Americans education. So because of that, I think that there's maybe more of a connection and relationship between the idealists and then this, what would have been the civic generation here. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't necessarily have them is because they, due to their view of race in a post-war world, they're they find themselves agreeing more with that idealist generation than maybe we see with a couple of the other generational cycles. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, we're definitely on our, our path there, but when you think about that same idea with, like, a today's society, right, I think most millennials would say that they pretty heavily disagree with, like, a, a baby boomer mentality and ideology in a lot of ways. But when the main conflict and structure in this generational cycle is race and fractured nation, um, I think that the civic generation is finding themselves both relating more with and agreeing more with what would be their baby boomer, yeah. their I- idealist generation. Yeah. yeah, so it's hard to bring it back together. Right, yeah. right. But I, but I still do think that there was an opportunity to maybe highlight some of those, uh, the reconstruction. I, I think you could have called it a reconstruction uh, generation and, and really shown how structurally a lot of these new laws and the, the reconstruction of the state is being brought back together um, following the war. So I felt like that maybe was a, a little bit of a weak oversight here, but interesting. Yeah. Still yeah. very interesting. Can you elaborate more on reconstruction? I feel like we don't hear about it enough. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think as a historian, it's, I find that my students oftentimes think that what ends up happening is the Civil War ends and then everything's okay and we, we move on to this reconstruction where we're reunifying the nation but we don't necessarily dig none of my students ever really know what happens in this period right so it's kind of glossed over like in history you're taught american revolution civil war and then world war one yeah. world war two yeah. vietnam yeah yeah um and even like more specifically i think we spent a lot of time on like the roaring 20s and uh like yeah. that progressive era but we don't necessarily look at Reconstruction in the same light. And I think the reason why is because Reconstruction is overall a pretty dark point in American history from my perspective. And oftentimes, I, I would argue that is a failure. Um, mm-hmm. And following the war, you do have, especially in the South, um, I did a lot of my master's work in Charleston. And immediately following the Civil War, you were seeing a city that, for since its founding, has been dominated by plantation owners and this uh, white patriarchal uh, class and now the African American community with the support of the Northern Union Army Mm. is starting to really like put into place like forced integration in the city right and they're really putting into place the ability to vote and to get an education and they're building schools and it looks like there's going to be this great positive change but then you see the seeds of that, that Southern racism really start to seep into every facet of society. And the compromises that come out of Reconstruction eventually reunify the nation, but at the cost of all of the progress that 
the uh, post-war African-American community was really making. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, for example, you'll see instances of uh, access to the vote following the war is pretty open, but then you'll see both violent rejection of that through actions of, like, the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacist groups, but then you'll also see, like, legal codified law put into place for uh, literacy tests, right, at at this Mm -hmm. point. And those are, like, fundamentally damaging to a community that if you were an emancipated person in America at this point, you don't have the education to pass a literacy test, nonetheless a literacy test that's specifically targeted to be like overly complicated right. and convoluted. And those structures didn't stay in place until the civil rights movement in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So in so many ways, I, I look at Reconstruction as an opportunity of like potential great, great growth, but ultimately a failure. Right. Yeah. So a lot of those like southern ideas, this lost cause narrative, is recreated in, re- in this Reconstruction era, and the nation is starting to say, oh, "Okay, we'll, we'll we'll highlight the whole nation, which not just North or South. We're really trying to bring us back into this union." Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll see Confederate st- monuments start to go up once we get towards like the turn of the century, um, and that I think that all grows out of this this racial intolerance and racial conflict at the end of the Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. So the next cycle we have is the great power cycle. This is the uh, 20th century America. And the first generation, idealist type, is the missionary generation. So this is going to be the generation then that is taking over where those where the early progressives left off. So they're going to be the ones that are how would I say this? The progressive movement such like a long lasting movement, uh, the progressive Gilded Age. Um, so they're the ones that pre-war, pre-World War One, but post-turn of the century are really starting to come of age in that like teens, 19-teens mm-hmm. era, right? So you'll see with that, you'll see a lot of discussion on, I think, that this is really where you're starting to see this like immigration is a big topic. You're seeing the state power, like the state interjection into like every part of society. So like people are starting to talk about law very differently. They're starting to talk about like industrialized industrialized centers, like like large major urban centers very differently. And they're setting the stage then for, we're going to go back into our reactives after this, they're setting the stage for the, the next generation to have to deal with this world that's about to succumb to like a colonial war largely, right? I feel like the, the missionary generation doesn't get talked about much, but this is a really strong generation of, of women leaders. Okay, yeah. And kind of putting their, their stamp on America. Yeah, this, w- this would have been the... Jane Addams would have been born in this generation, right? I could be wrong. I think, isn't that where a lot of this generation is... It's a combination of the progressive and the, the missionary who kind of have women's voting rights and yeah, so women's, women's suffrage yeah. is definitely being talked about at this point. You're definitely seeing this. Um, so I agree with where you're coming from. I see that point, um, and I think that what you do see a lot is that th- through both women fighting for their own suffrage, you'll also see women participating in this more maternal outlook on society, and you're starting to see that they would call themselves like progressive leaders but women like Jane Addams will pull will eventually bring up like this idea of like a whole house which is a community house where 
immigrant families, poor families can come and they can get an education, they can work, they can, and um, there's structures set in place uh, for these still, but it's it's women really largely like creating creating their own access when they don't necessarily have the right to vote, and once they get the right to vote, how they're using that right and how they're using that vote seems to be a, a major point in this yeah. yeah. So then the next generation, the reactive type, is the lost generation. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a generation that I, I wanted to talk about with you. Uh, one of my uh, advisors when I was in Charleston wrote a, a great book called Wastelands. And it, uh, Scott Poole, W. Scott Poole. It looks at World War One and the destruction that World War One brought, um, both on physical land of these countries involved, but then also like on the body. So he looks at, he claims that this is the rise of like modern horror is going to grow out of this. Um, and I was just thinking about it when I was reading the the reactive generation here. These are the the men that are being sent into a massive global conflict and are seeing destruction on a level that we've never seen. Before. Never, because now you have war and killing industrialized. Exactly. And before this, exactly. it's not it's not like that at all. Exactly. And what that does to the human body when you're seeing people shot by machine guns and digging trench warfare where they're in long, long, brutal stalemates of just not even making any ground. Um, and the only thing you can do is just pass the time thinking about when you're going to die. die. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy. And from the like, American perspective here, we entered that war later but when you think about it from the European point of view, I mean, this is just wholly destructive yeah, to society, completely. right? Like, cities are being wiped out. Whole generations of people are being wiped out. And it's staggering to really look at the amount of physical damage, but then psychological damage that's imposed on this generation. I think it's... And the, I think the psychological damage continues on. And you can see it in a lot of the, the artists and the writing it's basically like, you know, you have the generation before that's it's uh, comes about during this like spiritual time, mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're very spiritual, religious. And mm-hmm. this generation's like, what's the point of life? Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they'll they'll um, indulge themselves, you know, sex and, and booze and drugs or whatever, because you don't know. It's yeah. what's the point of life? I'm just going to enjoy yeah. it as long as I can, yeah. right? Right. Um. And so why I mentioned that Wastelands book is that what it largely shows is like this generation that went off and fought this war and then comes home, they're manifesting their trauma into artistic expression that lays the groundwork for like the modernity of horror as a genre that we consume. So Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's the idea of body horror and like losing limbs, like that really comes out of this World War One generation, because that's what they saw every day. So, the, um, the he cites like Dracula is a really big example. This idea of, of a zombie uh, or like a ghoul really grows out of the the post World War One generation and putting their psychological traumas and then they're also like their physical traumas that they themselves yeah. have uh, into an artistic expression, which ends up becoming horror. It's just a very interesting book. Yeah, that would have been. Uh Man, I mean, any time in history would be a tough time, I feel like. But, yeah. but man, 
yeah. if you're like coming to age or uh, you know you're in your adulthood as part of this generation it's, it's pretty gloomy yeah. it's dark very it's dark. dark yeah definitely and the questions of that I think might be kind of overlooked here is we're the whole book in general is, is very western talks it's a, an American history book but what this war and what this generational struggle does to the world both like physically but then on like a colonial mindset you, you're starting to see so much of the, the world uh, fight this battle over territory that's not in Central Europe right they're fighting huge conflicts over like, African colonies and colonies in the in Middle East and Asia and yeah it's it, I mean it'll, it'll continue to stay there into World War II but just how massive and destructive the First World War was is just kind of almost like incomprehensible to really understand so it's uh it's overshadowed by World War II because World War II there's a clear good guy bad guy right World War One, it's it's this um I listened to when I was back on the farm when I'm on the tractor listening to Dan Carlin's yeah. Hardcore History and yeah. he does six episodes or eight whatever it is and they're like three hours each right. and he goes into detail and there's all these alliances that are being made so when the Archduke is assassinated you know this country is looking over there and be like hey well you're in alignment right. with us so you have to like help us out if there's a problem and then then the other the other country is like going to their allies and be like hey well right. we're together too so then you have this web just like tangled up right of and it just the industrial scale of the killing it's yeah. it's for like what you know it's like for inches it's like so many of these uh, World War One battles are fought for you know feet hundreds of feet to make advancements and it's yeah, yeah shocking it's crazy yeah um, we'll get into it again when we get into World War Two, which I guess we could just jump into right now but we got uh, the, the GI generation yeah civic type right so they're these are going to be the for lack of a better term the, the heroes of World War Two, right they're going to mm-hmm. be the ones that are born in that um 1920s and their era and they're coming of age and serving in the second world war they're you know the crusaders against fascism and so mm-hmm. in the most simple term here one of the distinctions i was just curious as to what you thought about it was you had mentioned the with world war one being so destructive because it's a global conflict with this like industrialized way of killing um, and when you look back at that war, I think so many people critique all of the countries involved for using like chemical warfare, um, and it's kind of seen as like a, a large-scale negative, which I mean I, I agree with. But then in the next war, you have people using atomic energy as a weapon, and it's referred to as a means to an end, as a means to end the war quicker. And I, I think that people in World War One would have made the same argument that they maybe detested the idea of chemical warfare, but it was an opportunity to end the war quicker. So it's just weird how one of those generations is kind of tarnished for their use of like technology and killing, and then the other one is kind of heralded as like the saviors of humanity for it. It's a super interesting Super point. weird. Wow. I feel like World War Two. so much is going on. So many people are so many people are involved in the war effort, you know, women working in the factories, and just like it's a collective... Right. Uh, thing and you know you have 
GI scientists that are creating the, the nuclear bomb and no one really knows and they're testing it and, and it's, it's just like the world was just focused on that war and they just wanted it over with right and I, right I don't know and wanted it over with and as you had mentioned earlier it's during the time the the stories that are coming out from the Axis powers are pretty clear that these are the bad guys in the war, right? People right. are pr- pretty much detesting the actions of the Axis powers on a scale that, well, it exists in World War One. I, I think it's just magnified ten, tenfold with World War absolutely, II. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting points that I wanted to bring up about the World War II generation, you had mentioned it, was like the collectiveness of it, and I think it's interesting because it's like a forced collectiveness through this idea that the structural change that's being implemented here is quite literally because society cannot work. If your working male population is fighting a war overseas, you still need to have industry, you still need to have production, you still need to have a society at home. It's just women, be, like like you mentioned, like they start to work, and uh, it's those are the structural changes that are almost forced upon our society because of the war. So it's just an interesting time period there uh, where... But it's, it's interesting, too, how, like, you see how that does work, and it kind of changes the way the economy is structured moving forward. Oh, right, yeah. You know? Definitely. Um, fascinating. Okay, so then we have the last one of that, that cycle is the silent generation. Yeah, the silent generations uh, that have always been a very intriguing generation to me because they're really the ones that are, uh, you know, they're growing up in this... 50s white picket fence society where their parents are being heralded as like the heroes and like the saviors of democracy and uh, in that regard they're maybe a little overlooked um, because they aren't matching up to their parents but they are living into it they're coming into their own in a society that's very conducive to like their own personal growth there's not large-scale economic problems there's not as large-scale global political conflict coming out of this in the same level of like a World War II or a World War I, right? There's definitely still conflicts, especially like between the rise of communism and democracy, but it's it's a generation of kids that are not necessarily having to interact with that conflict, right? They're, they they're, they're, they're very young when the Depression is going on and uh, right. World War II. I think of my grandma when she was very young and um, she talks about the rations and... Right. The rubber and black market Johnny with right. the meat, and right? Like, you know. Right. And, and so when they're, you know, when they're in their twenties, they're the ones that are. They miss the World War Two. Right. They missed World War Two, but now they get to reap the benefits of the society that grew out of World War Two. At right? the same time, too, like, so they miss that window to be the hero, but they also then have to deal with the rest of their lives hearing about the GI generation and the like greatest generation. Yeah. And like, oh, were you there fighting the war? Right, you know, like right, there's always right. that you can, the GIs can just hold over their heads, you know? Which, I mean, I think happens throughout. They're, they're almost gone now. The, G, the greatest generation's almost uh, totally gone and will be in the next 20 years. But um, I think even today we still see that. I mean, we literally call them the greatest generation. Like, that's the other term for them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think my experiences with people from, I've done a lot of research with uh, World War II veterans when I was an undergrad and uh, 
they they know they feel it they, <laughs> they definitely identify it and they're not afraid to tell you that they know that that's what they are and that they're very confident in their place as yeah. the greatest generation yeah yeah the blemish of the gi generation is the vietnam war and the leadership there right? yeah yeah definitely and we could that's a complicated topic because there's i think there's so much to be discussed about like global politics in the Cold War that is like fundamental to understanding that. Yeah. And then also once you get into that baby boom generation, um, the like total rejection of the, like the draft and of fighting a ideological war against someone across the globe that hasn't necessarily done anything to you or your own. So right. like, why are we there and why are we dying? Um, and then that mixed with this new type of warfare that's coming out of World War II, right? So, like, mm-hmm. war has forever changed out of this. We're trying to avoid these large-scale world conflicts again. Um, so you start to see these, like, smaller guerrilla tactics kind of take over in warfare. And um, particularly within Vietnam, it's just something that a lot of these, this leadership had never experienced. So they didn't know how to interact with a lot of this more abstract conflict way of fighting and conflict. And that's over in the war. And then internally at home you have people who are like fundamentally rejecting the the idea of, of this war and they're they're fed up with the idea of being the ones that have to take that stance and they want to just go out and have fun and like that's going to be the baby boomers so now the cycle we're in the millennial cycle yeah here the we boomers go. start off the idealist type yep we had mentioned it earlier this is the summer love hippie peace going out to Woodstock and just enjoying life. It's rebelling against the their parents who the, were the more strict 1950s family and they're believing that they really they're going to have fun while they're kids. They're not going to go fight in these foreign wars. They're going to reject the idea of the draft in Vietnam. But they're also going to believe that they're right for the rest <laughs> of the time that they're around. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, that's true. And largely, a lot of that comes from the fact that there's just so many of them, right? There's just so yeah. many. And they all come out of this period of growth uh, where, you know, the 1950s are economically a, a good time for the country. And, and a lot of these families are having multiple children. And just through the power of sheer numbers, they're able to impact so many different aspects of society. Um, so as a, like a generation, there's the thought and the ideology that is this summer of love and this peace uh, rhetoric is really just permeating throughout their younger lives and then they're going to move on and control politics once they get into that age where they're starting to care yeah. more in the late 70s and 80s. I thought it was interesting too in the what would it be like the 80s, you know, they have Reagan right. and they have more of like a religious awakening. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to bring that up when we started to talk about Reagan. Yeah. It, this is such a fascinating generation to me because the contradiction of the generation is like staggering. Where you and I have talked off record before a lot about my personal hero being like Fred Hampton. He would have been a boomer, like a baby boomer. Yeah. And he's very radical. Um, but then to look at those people who are, you know, growing up and are going to be the fighters of the civil rights movement electing Ronald Reagan in the eighties is like so contradictory to what I assumed that generation would have done. 
So it's just very like fascinating and interesting to me that that's where they ended up. So, yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. So then Gen X right. is after them. How I've always thought about Gen X, I have a special spot in my heart for Gen X. <laughs> um, I think they are, again, this is probably breaking away a little bit from the book, but just for my own personal life, they always seem to be the ones that just create the art and music and like film and everything that I love. Like I grew up on really? all those like all those cartoons that I grew up on when I was a kid. Um, those are all like made by Gen Xers, right? So it's just such a creative, interesting, weird yeah. type of art form that's coming out of this generation that I just like really love. Have a special spot in my heart for. Again, they're gonna be this like silent, um, more forgotten generation, but. I personally just love their cultural impact in the, the country. See, I don't really pay attention much to Gen Gen X culture. I'm more like boomer culture. Like, um, Interesting. I'm not really into video games mm-hmm. or like sci-fi or like really like watching movies yeah. or like 90s alternative rock I yeah. don't like. <laughs> um, it's I, I see the, the Gen X as really independent like kind of hands off and yeah. their parents would take them to the rated R movies or no they weren't even like rated they yeah. were just like yeah <laughs> whatever <laughs> so but I think some of the people that, that I pay attention to I think are from that era and they're entrepreneurs and okay. they're kind of the first ones to they might not get the uh, recognition that maybe the millennials in sheer numbers have done with like remote working right. and, and right. that type of thing Definitely. I think they kind of started that and kind of paved the way for us to kind of enjoy that yeah definitely i i feel like uh, you had said it they are sandwiched in between two like very very combative uh generations with the boomers on one end and then millennials on the other but uh so in so many ways i kind of feel like they're the forgotten ones that even today we still just like don't even maybe consider their impact but i i think you're right i think that that technologically what they provided and like creatively what they came up with is very impressive and it's a like you said very independent uh not necessarily for the 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 glam and glory of it all but because it's just a creative interesting thing that they really are passionate about they're gonna do it right why not okay millennials all right um this is again we probably need to note when it was published because the millennials are realistically born in that like early early 80s they say like 82-ish but the book is published in 91 so there's I was born in 94 I'm a millennial but I was even a twinkle in the eye at this point right so um, the theory at parts still holds up I would say I'm interested to hear what you think about it but um, some of their examples here seem like they just were kind of throwing darts at what might be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. The millennial generation. I've always thought of it as, and they do mention this, cohort, cohorts, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So you have, around your peers, there's usually like a three to four year on both sides, and right. it's kind of like you experience whatever you're experiencing together. So I always pictured it as like, 1980, 82, whatever it is, to like 86, 87, and then like 
the millennial generation has three cohorts or like sub generations, and then I would consider myself part of the middle cohort okay. gener- sub generation, which would be like eighty six ish to like ninety four. Yeah, and then like ninety five to like two thousand. Right. Because, well, this is what's what's so interesting about this book is that all of a sudden the internet happens a few years after this book, right? Yeah. Or like how we know it yeah, to be in a way or it's into the more yeah. accessible version of so this yeah. book when you're reading through it it's pretty like pretty linear yeah pretty everything's kind of on the same yeah. plane it, and it definitely reads like a like a what you would assume a history book of America just with this interesting twist on it but then I, I think I know where you're going with and this. then the internet just like it Shock puts a wrench into yeah. everything and yeah. it accelerates definitely Everything where the in the twenty year span of a generation, typically, right. there wouldn't be a whole lot of difference between them, the individuals in it. Right and now, now it's like the technology and the internet and even and a culture. few years could be yeah crazy. It's so so. It's interesting as as a whole of a generation. There's there's so much variance. Yeah, and at the same time too, I still feel like there's. A common bond. I, I totally agree. I definitely see that like collective identity between millennials, um, but it's crazy to like look at the experiences of them. And you're right; it's that technological shift with the internet and with the ability to communicate um, via phones later in the generation. Like that, it's being able to have access to information at your fingertips. Um, We're also straddling at least the older millennials, straddling a world where it's still very physical, you would go to the library, encyclopedias for research, and at the same time too, we're starting to use Wikipedia, and they're showing us how to research online, and and then the younger sub-generation just has the one experience. Yeah. So we're kind of straddling the line there. Yeah, I've definitely... And it makes us... Go ahead. Unique. Which is a millennial, millennial uh, characteristic we always love to talk Throw about around. ourselves. Yeah. Um, I've thought about this a ton because it's just so interesting to me. I remember growing up and my childhood was very much riding my bike around the neighborhood, going to play in the like, baseball and the sandlot in the neighborhood, kind of things like that. Very physical. The We didn't have the internet on the same way that we do later um and but then i also remember those days of like when me and my friends when the internet blew up and we were all nerdy kids wanting to go play video games we would like tape our phones to our heads so that we could talk to each other while we were playing our games on the computer and it's that straddling the line of like i remember a time when technology wasn't like hadn't caught up yet and it was in those very very early stages of tech like technology technological advancements through the internet and through communication that I don't think anyone born really too much after me is ever going to experience that. They, their world, they're going to always kind of know technology as being an all-encompassing part of their society, right? Like, that's, they're not going to have that period where cell phones aren't a thing, right? When I, I remember a time very vividly where, like, cell phones weren't a common yeah. thing at all. Uh, yeah, I do remember those days. Um, so it's just fascinating to me. It's weird. These are the type of things that when we're 80 years old, we're going to be telling people yeah. about, like the world yeah. before, and we, we grew up 
during this time yeah. and, and look how special we are. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. But do you think we're one of the first generations too where our parents are looking at us being like, how can you do four things at once right now? I think they say it in the, uh, in the later, like the very, very end, maybe like chapter 13 or something. But uh, they talk about how there's like advertisements saying, my eight-year-old taught me science, and it would be like in any other generation that would be like laughed at. But now it's like, no, I think my eight-year-old actually might know more science than me. They just have yeah. more access to this stuff, and they're able to go on their computer and read about some random thing and read a book and go out and do all a million things at once. And it's just, um, I think that's a really thrilling part of being a millennial is we have access to this. So I see it a lot. It seems like millennials are just constantly thriving for that pursuit of like some form of education or expression that is only available because of the internet and really only available because of the access to this information. So. Every generation before, you looked to your elders to solve problems. Right. And now, with the, the technological advances, the older generations are looking to us to solve their technology mm -hmm. problems, mm -hmm. right? Which right. is this total opposite thing. So, I mean, I, I, like on that point where, you know, even the basic, the most basic things, like when you're a kid and you're learning to drive and you get a flat tire and your parent teaches you how to change your tire, right? Um, that's something that I think millennials today and the generation following us will look up on our own just how to do these like yeah. more basic tasks that the previous generation would normally install you. But then also the generations before us and they're gonna look to us to explain how a cell phone works. Like how how do I turn my computer on? Yeah. How what remote do I use to get the subtitles on the TV? Um, and it's just something that we're more familiar with just because of our, our place in that technological revolution. You have this intersection of the technology revolution, internet, but also just the history of where we're placed, where a lot of resources was invested in us learning, mm -hmm. putting a lot of care and putting a lot of care into our development. And so we are one of the most educated generations. Right. And with that, just education-wise, we're able to teach ourselves more and more. It's like a self-sustaining right. model in a way. When I was growing up, it was the only thing I was told when I was in school was, you need to go to college, you need to go to college, college how you'll get a career, it's gonna be a good job. Every single person I know, um, to some extent, went and pursued education past high school, where I feel like previous generations it was maybe more encouraged to get into a trade or do your own uh, like entrepreneurial path and for us it definitely feels like education and advancing yourself through that is is kind of the, the primary force um, for so many people that I know that I grew up with like that's I agree but I also think there's well I think that was kind of the model that was like handed down and um, like the boomer generation saw that oh if you want like a a secure, stable life, like get good grades, go to school, get a good job, work hard, save, hit all, all these milestones. Right. And I think what we have seen, I think we're experiencing it now where there's kind of like this saturation, this bubble where everybody now has college right. degrees. Right. And now those trades are becoming a lot more right. oh, um, I agree. 
valuable to have skills in. So I, it's like kind of yeah. this, yeah, this like this reaction to yeah. that. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it fits nicely into the conversation of like a cycle for the book, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So where do you think the millennial generation goes from here? That's an interesting question. I, uh, it's it's difficult because it's predictive, and, and as a historian, right. you you never really want to fall too much into this. But uh, for sake of discussion, I'll try my best. Um, I think that where we're going from here, and what we'll see in the near future, is this unity through a more radical, more progressive political ideology and cultural ideology in the sense of uh, the rights that we're demanding and the kind of this rejection of the Reagan state that we've lived in for so long now. This this 80s very conservative turn and this neoliberal turn with Clinton. Um, I think we're going to see a rejection of that and then I think we're going to see millennials set up a society in which I, I, I see it as a setting up a more empathetic, a more understanding, and a more inclusive society for everyone. It's kind of our, our path right now. I think it's complicated to say like specific events, but we've talked about college debt reform, prison reform, environmental reform, and I think that those are some of these tasks that we're going to kind of take under our wing, revolutionize, and then hopefully set up for next generations to kind of build on. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. What about you? I agree with a lot of those concepts. I think it's a matter of how we go about doing it. Mm-hmm. One part of that is like banging on the door, like this is what we want. And I'm more so of like, how do we involve more people in this conversation and listen to them and try to like explain and right. meet with them to kind of share our own thoughts with them, reason and, and logical way so that we can transition so it's not revolution it's more so of a smooth smoother transition into the future interesting Um, that's what i would hope uh but i i really love how our generation is very collaborative and uh more inclusive and how our generation is is more focused on empathy and listening to others and moving forward with those in mind those qualities yeah and i i should clarify because i feel like maybe this didn't come off the right way i between like a surface level left and right politically I think that like communication and inclusion between those groups and conversation is important and I think that um, people on both sides of the aisle political aisle would agree with a lot of the reform that millennials are going to be proposing I guess what I was saying that the revolution is going to come in the form of a rejection from the like the top one percent and the income like inequality and wealth distribution of our of our country and then the world at large, I think that's going to be where the revolution really takes place. And millennials are going to be the ones calling for this radical change there for the betterment of society because we see the damages that that has done to us. Not necessarily that it's so black and white, left and right, politically. It's Um, more so identifying these are the challenges that are going to come. mm -hmm. How do we solve these problems together? Right. Right. Where it's not left or right issue. It's more so like, well, the stuff is happening. We need need to take care of it. The environment. Yeah. yeah. So to close out this discussion on the book, yeah. what, what do you think about the book as a whole? Do you think it was helpful? Do you think- yeah, so I would say that to a, like a popular audience who has, who's interested in American history, that it's a great, interesting perspective. Um, 
it's kind of impossible to deny some of these cycles and some of these, uh, uh, they always say, when you see like repetition, you should acknowledge it and figure out why. Um, and I think that they do, a, there's a lot of research here. They are, their theory is something I had not considered prior to reading it, so it's, it's very interesting to me. I do feel like there are, historically, sometimes they pigeonhole some of their actors and some of their events um, to fit a specific generation when that might not be the most appropriate way um, to do so. So there's that aspect. And then I also feel like I'm very fascinated and would be very interested in talking to them about this theory on a global scale, because this is obviously an American history book. Mm -hmm. Um, But does the same generational structure fit in with non-U.S. countries? Like, like, does it fit in? Could you use the same generational framework um, to consider... Russia from, you know, their revolution in the early 1900s to becoming a Soviet state and then coming back away from that Soviet state. I'd be very interested to see if there's the same structure could be used. And I feel like that's it's a very, like, Western book. Um, there's not a lot of discussion on, like, non-predominantly white nations. There's not, we don't get a discussion of, like, an Africa or, like, and I just would be interested to see if, like, that generational framework is still consistent it's really it's really fun yeah if, I mean if you're interested if you're interested in American history it's like fun yeah and you I know? will say uh, visually it looks like a big book like a like a thick book but um, you really do fly through it it's mm-hmm. pretty easy read it's not too complicated at any point once you get past the idea of what they're explaining through their theory the rest of it reads yeah very fluid I would agree yeah for sure yeah um, so it's definitely it looks maybe a little bit more intimidating than it actually is and I think it causes, I think it's like a great jumping off point for a lot of really great conversation um, for people who think alike and for people who think very differently. I, I think that um, it's a tool for discussion, and I appreciate that. I appreciate you coming on. This oh, is fun. We're, th- we'll do it again. Yeah, definitely. With a different book. I would love to. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rich.